coming up on this week's episode of TechSnap. We find out just how hard, or not, responsible disclosure really is. Then we share some sad news about the state of ButterFS on Red Hat Enterprise Linux and a few more reasons you should already be using ZFS. Plus, there's a handy new tool that will let you find out if your password's been cracked, and maybe just maybe we reveal Dan's password hashes on air. You'll have to find out by watching this week's episode of TechSnap. Plus, we've got your awesome feedback and a rockin' roundup and so much more. Welcome to TechSnap, Jupiter Broadcasting's weekly systems, network, and administration podcast. This is episode 331, streamed live, and is brought to you by our three excellent sponsors, DigitalOcean, Ting, and IX Systems. My name is Wes, and joining me this week is the man with way too many hard drives. That's right, it's everyone's favorite. It's Dan. Welcome to the show today. That's me, way too many hard drives. What are you going to do with them all? Replace a ten drive three uh, a, th- uh, a ten drive three terabyte array into a ten drive five terabyte array. So go from thirty to fifty terabytes raw. That is an incredible Should, improvement. Yes. Well, hopefully that box is running out of space. That's my bo- backup <laughs> box. So. But then you have to deal with all the excess hard drives. Them, I'm going to run through DBAN and sell to the highest bidder on eBay. Hey, okay. A man with a plan. We've got a jam-packed show today. Lots of great stuff to talk about, I guess, unless you have anything you'd like to yes, uh, prelude. Yes, we do. You could jump right in. Uh, does anyone use Onkyo? Onkyo? Is that O-N-K-Y-O? I don't even know the name of the brand. Uh, I've got one of their um, audio receivers for my surround sound on my TV. And I bought it right after I moved into this apartment, and it died about three years in. And um, a friend of mine said, it's probably your stereo speakers. Unplug them all and plug one back in at a time. You probably have a short. So I tried that, still no sound. Tried the headphones, no sound. Then I started looking online to find out who's having problems with no sound. Turned out a lot of people were having problems with no sound. And Onkyo is replacing the unit. So if you ship it back, they'll repair it. Or if you want, you can pay $200 and get a brand new unit, which has more features. Um, plus, it's a new unit. So that's what I'm going to do. And it arrives tomorrow. Just in time for me to go on holiday. Oh, nice. Yes. New so then- gear. It doesn't doesn't have to be computer gear. No, it does not. And I guess that means when you get back from holiday, you can set it all up. You'll be excited. You'll have been waiting for it. I don't know if I'm going to have time to set it up tomorrow night because tomorrow night's dining under the stars. So. Oh, you've got yes. such good plans. I love it. Yes, yes. Okay, well, I guess should we just roll right into our first story today? Y- yes, we, we should because this is all about a plan. That's right. So, this week is a Troy Hunt double feature. And I make no apologies for that because he's he, he has two really good things he's that been killing I it. just happened to stumble across. Yeah. I, I've been um, 
I've been signed up to his Have I Been Pwned website. Basically, you put in your email address and he lets you know if that email address turns up in a data breach and it's a free service. Um, and what I've always wanted to know, though, that I know I can't get is, okay, it's been pwned, but what was the password that was it was associated with it? And I couldn't – he's not going to give that out, security reasons. But what he has given out, and we'll get up to that later, is a list of the hashes. But this article is talking about responsible disclosure and how hard it is to get that right. But then he also talks about how easy it is for a website to give you all the information that you need as a security researcher in order to, to make responsible disclosure easy for you. And so what this is about is kids pass. And as an example of, of what can go wrong if a company doesn't take security contacts seriously. So Troy starts out by saying, only a couple of months ago, I did a talk titled The Responsibility of Disclosure, Playing Nice and Staying Out of Prison, which is a hot topic at the moment. The basic premise was to illustrate where folks finding security vulnerabilities often go wrong in their handling of the reporting. But I also wanted to show how organizations frequently make it difficult to responsibly disclose the issue in the first place. Now, when we talked about those uh, stuffed toys that had a recording in them, that that researcher had trouble getting right. them to listen. Uh, and this happens time and time again. So. He starts off with an excerpt from his uh, his talk, and I recommend that after listening to us, go in there and listen to the last 20 minutes of his talk. It's very interesting in terms of what goes wrong and what goes right. So, Now, the example he's given for um, kidspass.co.uk is they give you a URL which has your profile on it. And that URL has a number in it, which I'm going to call a membership number. And that displays your, your data. But what's wrong with this is that you can change that number. You can increment it, decrement it, and you're seeing someone else's data. Now, this is actually called an insecure direct object reference. And it's Say a very well-known insecure direct object reference. Okay, so the URL is directly referencing an object. So what, what is in the URL is an actual data entity ID that's in the database. Somewhere. I see, yes, okay. So all you do is you change that number and you can see that information because you're logged in. You know, usually it's like slash my profile. And that's what most people do is slash my profile and then from somewhere in your... Uh, login information in the back end they pull the data out of the database according to your ID at least that's how I do it but what they do here is they put the membership number in the URL and then use that for fetching data from the from their database and they don't do any security checking to make sure that it's a membership number of the person logged in I see okay rookie mistake yeah 
So basically, you can look at all the data in the database through this. So naturally, this guy was concerned. So he he talked to Roy Hunt, uh, Troy Hunt, and Troy said, get in touch with them and definitely don't access any other data from here. It's pretty clear there's a flaw now. And then just to be sure he got the traction, I quote tweeted an earlier message he'd sent them and called for some help. And he said, any UK followers have a contact at Kids Pass? I've seen this and it's not pretty. So basically, Troy is putting it out there for anyone to help that can. So that's it. He went away. And 11 hours later, the researcher, Alex, got back to him to say that Kids Pass wasn't real happy to have heard from him. They had blocked him on Twitter. Basically, he could not look at their t Twitter page at all. Why block someone? So then Troy went and had a look, and Troy was blocked as well. And Troy had only referenced them. He had not contacted wow. them. He only referenced them, and they blocked him. So literally the only tweet he'd sent was the one embedded above, and for that he was blocked. So quoting from, from the article again, Right about here, you should be getting a sense of why I've mentioned the difficulty of responsible disclosure in the title of this post. This is probably the simplest, most, eth most ethical example I could think of when it comes to doing the right thing by a company that is clearly doing the wrong thing, or at least the code is doing the wrong thing. Yet here we were, both Alex and I blocked from any further communications via Twitter. But if they had thought that would stop people from trying to help them, then they had another thing coming. And Troy Hunt then tweets out, UK friends, can someone get in touch with these clowns? They have a serious vuln and they are blocking anyone who tries to contact them and gave uh, a link to a picture. So seriously, go, go find this article, click on it and read what happened after that. So, so here you've got two people saying, you've got a serious risk leaking customer details issue and they don't even want to know what it is but they're looking into it apparently anyway so the company replied and said yep we're looking into it but no one's told them what it is yet all they said is listen there's a problem we want to tell you what it is but they're looking for it but it's not just this one incident by this company a few weeks earlier someone else had contacted them and said they had massive security issues. And nothing came of that either. The original premise of that blog post was to call them to account for a practice that was brought to their attention all the way back in December again. So this is two incidents, one more than six months ago and one only a few weeks ago. So scrolling further through the article, you find out that what Alex was trying to tell them had been brought up to them by someone else. And here you have multiple people finding the same risk, which would allow for the easy exfiltration of data en masse. And this is just the guys that we know of that have found this problem. Who else found it and didn't let them know? So eventually, some folks were able to convince them that they were blocking the wrong people and to have a listen to what they're actually trying to tell them. So, just an example of what goes wrong when you don't follow the right thing 
when people are trying to tell you there's a problem. Don't ignore them. Pay attention to them. So, in the talk that Troy Hunt was talking about earlier, the video, he goes over a list of things of what Tesla does right. And he has Tesla's vulnerability reporting policy. And I'm just going to read off the key things. I'm not going to read the whole page. I'm just going to read off the, um, the, the section titles. Here's our security vulnerability reporting policy, and you can read it. We value researchers and encourage responsible disclosure. You can read that section. Here's where to email a vulnerability to us, email address. Here's our PGP key, should you wish to encrypt it. And it actually says we give priority treatment to an encrypted email. Here's how soon we'll get back to you. And it said within one to two days. Here's what you should and shouldn't do when you find a vulnerability. There's a list of about five or six things, all of which was easily understood. Can't go wrong by doing what they say. We commit not to take legal action if you comply with those guidelines. Wow. That's yeah, that's really, that's, that's very nice. That's outstanding. Any valid security researcher can follow those instructions, responsibly disclose, and know that they're not going to get in trouble. Because some people come back and say, oh, no, you broke in. No, I didn't break in. Right, or they, they miss the context of, of what you were doing and the intention behind it, which... It, exactly. Ugh. Yikes. So, so Tro Troy finishes with, with two, three sentences. This is not hard stuff, and it basically amounts to text on a page. Consider whether your own organization has something to this effect and is actually ready to handle disclosure by those who attempt to do so ethically. Listen to those people and be thankful they exist. There's a whole bunch of others out there who are far less charitable. And by the time you hear from those guys, it's already too late. I have to admit, I don't have a security. I don't have a vulnerability disclosure policy. You know, I don't, I don't either. But uh, I think we're hardly the biggest fish at fault here. Mm, but, no. he's, but, he's, but he's totally right that, you know, we live in a world where it's, it's not if but when – and mm -hmm. you, you really need to be prepared for it. Mm -hmm. And to engage in a productive way with the security community so that you don't make enemies mm -hmm. of people who want to be your friends or at least provide you know, constructive criticism, let's call it. Like putting them in jail for accessing a URL. Exactly. Oh, God. yeah, exactly like that. It, it's, what was it? It was, it was, was it Apple's stuff that was, it was online? Was it at and, and I thought? AT&T. But I yes. think that was back in the day when AT&T and Apple had that uh, had a rather intense mm -hmm. partnership. And they had um you could just change a number in the URL and get someone else's data. Yes. Which is like yeah, yeah how can you I mean come on. I'm just making some, making some some gets here. You can't you can't fault me for that. It's Protect people yourself. With, yeah. Yeah. It's your fault. Crazy. Okay, anything else you wanted to add before we move on? I really like Tesla's policy here. It was so simple. I read it. I follow. I understood it. Anyone else should be able to. I completely agree. Okay. Well, uh, thank you very much. That's great. And now that's time for our first sponsor this evening, which is our friends over at DigitalOcean.com. That's right. If you're looking for a new VPS 
a new server really of any kind or if you're looking for a cloud platform that's just designed for developers that's simple that's easy to use and won't cost you an arm and a leg look no further than DigitalOcean. you can get started with our promo code snap ocean all underscore one word snap ocean that gets you a ten dollar credit oh yeah and when you find out that DigitalOcean's pricing you won't believe this but it starts at just five dollars a month that gets you a whopping 512 mb of memory one cpu 20 gigs of all ssd disk and one terabyte of transfer this isn't this isn't your grandmother's transfer this is premium enterprise level i mean we're talking we're talking real gigabits here right to the hypervisor transfer I, I use DigitalOcean all the time when I, you know, I'm having to speed up or my local ISP or whatever ISP I happen to be on. Maybe they don't, maybe they just don't have great peering to the place I happen to be downloading from. You can bet DigitalOcean does. So, you know, spin up an instance, get it started for, for an hour. One thing they have here is, you know, you've got, you've got prices both for monthly or hourly. So if you, if you need a beefy rig, you know, let's say you need 16 gigs of memory, eight CPUs, and six terabytes of transfer, yeah, okay, that's $160 a month, but that's like two cents an hour. So fine, spin it up, start like a thousand VPN servers, connect to that, get faster downloads, and and away you go. So not only does DigitalOcean have, you know, basically the raw compute power that you might need, they've got new high CPU droplets for even more power, and they've got a ton of things to help you manage your network, your hosts, your whole infrastructure. Things like attachable block storage, things like, you know, sane ways to do multiple accounts and team accounts and keep that together without just pulling your hair right out. Private networking, right? So you can have your private database that can only talk to your web server. The public can't access it. And then and you can set things up right. And they won't bill you extra as long as that's in the same data center. How, how great is that? They've got load balancing, monitoring, and they're working on object storage plus they've got an incredible community of active members people in 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 our community really that are writing guides they've hired hired real editors to take those community contributions and turn them into top-notch documentation and if all of that wasn't enough guess what they've got a whole security page here you need to report a security vulnerability there's an email for that they've got a responsible disclosure policy they've got their pgp keys up there they're playing ball. They're the kind of people that we are. They are concerned about doing things right. They've got a ton of great guides to help you make sure that your servers are secure. They've got cloud firewalls to make sure that even if you don't want to use hypey tables and hey, who can blame you, you can still secure your droplets. So use our promo code SNAPOcean that says, hey, thanks to DO for sponsoring us and gets you a $10 discount and go build something fun and let us know what you built. Thank you, DigitalOcean, for sponsoring the TechSnap program. Woo! All right. So that first news, you know, a call to action. This next mm-hmm. piece, kind of, kind of the opposite. A little bit of a winding down. This concerns Red Hat Enterprise Linux seven point four release notes, and someone was reading through them, and in amongst all the um, things such as ciphers that are no longer used and legacy CA certificates that are gone and various packages and other file systems that have been removed. But RFS has been deprecated. I said removed. 
before I uh, before I meant deprecated, but ButterFS has been deprecated. The ButterFS file system has been in technology preview state. I didn't know that since the initial release of Red Hat Enterprise Linux 6. Red Hat will not be moving ButterFS to a fully supported feature, and it will be removed in a future major release of Red Hat Enterprise Linux. Now, they don't say when that's going to be, but the ButterFS file system did receive numerous updates from the upstream in Red Hat Enterprise Linux 7.4 and will remain available in the series will remain available in the Red Hat Enterprise Linux 7 series. However, this is the last planned update to this feature. So no more updates after 7.4. So basically, it's an abandoned project. It's it's an abandoned file system within uh, Red Hat 7.4. It's not going to change. There's not going to be any updates. It's not going to be any bug fixes. No improvements. That's sort of sad. Yeah. So, what did you? Know what did this make you think about this? I mean, you um, you know, you wanted to include it in the show and, and touch on it. Well, everyone knows I'm biased and bigoted. That's a fact. I much, I, I much much prefer FreeBSD and ZFS, but ZFS is now available on Linux in a lot of different places, and I bet you can even get it on Red Hat. You know, that's not something I've ever tried, but uh, you certainly could. Uh, it's just a could, kernel module away. Is it? Really? Yeah. It's that simple. I mean, I mean, pretty much. You, I mean, you have to also install the userland tools and, and et cetera. Um, but yeah, for the most part, I mean, you go, that's, you build the like Solaris compatibility layer and then you build the actual ZFS kernel module. Uh, so the biggest pain point is if they don't have all the hooks, a lot of distributions have wrappers that'll do like a dynamic kernel module recompilation. So anytime your kernel updates, it'll rebuild all those out-of-tree kernel modules for you. So if you don't have that, it might be kind of a pain. But if you're using it in any serious capacity, then you could always, you know, put that on a CI server somewhere and stick it up and build it in your own private repo if you're doing something like that. Uh, so you're right. It's definitely it's definitely available. I don't know that it has any sort of first-class support on anything but, let's say, Ubuntu. Uh, but it's there. I mean, ZFS on Linux has made steady improvements, and it seems like mm-hmm. a lot of people are using it for serious yes. workloads. And I don't... We just decided to start using it even in VMs at work. Is that right? Yeah. So, say under vSphere or something, we're using it under there. Why? Snapshots, mostly. Yeah, right? Exactly. Um, so It's, it's user- awesome to have that. The user wants to try something, or, or even we want to try something. Okay, we're going to upgrade this system now. We install it with a bAdmin layout. We can just snapshot, clone, upgrade. If it doesn't work, change the next boot to be the the old boot environment. Yeah, right. It, it keeps it so simple, and you have no you have to you don't have the same kind of fear that you're like, oh well, I'm going to run yeah. this update, and if it works the server, then I guess I mm-hmm, rebuild mm-hmm. it. Yeah, which that's now, really from a time in the past. Now, now people will say, well, you can snapshot at the at the hypervisor level. It's not it's not quite the same thing. Right, and I think like we've had snapshots just in the tech community for for a long time, you know, before copy on write file systems really became in vogue. But they were they mm-hmm. were expensive or slow or out of band or offline or like all kinds of limitations. And and ZFS just like 
they're they're cheap and they're easy and you can just do them and it, it can change the way that you like interact with your file system. Have you ever heard that snapshots on VMware slows it down? No, I have not. Um, it was either vSphere or VMware or something like that, where if you want it, it's not recommended to have a lot of snapshots hanging around. I may be, I may be talking out of school, but um, does that phrase mean anything to you? Yeah, no, absolutely. I uh, like that. Like you could be wrong, but from your recollection, that that's... well, sometimes I use phrases that are from a totally different group, and I like it. We're keeping it buried up in here. Um, yeah. So, uh, I'm sort of disappointed because I know a lot of people use ButterFS and and really uh, like it, but don't use. There's a particular version you're supposed. There's a particular RAID level you're not supposed to use because it sort of wax things and um uh a linux person that i know uh whose opinion on these matter matters i value said that he doesn't let his friends use it he doesn't trust his data to it yeah i mean i think that's kind of been some of the the pain points like it's not that it was unusable or guaranteed data loss or anything like that but it was like you had to at least somewhat be a competent administrator who understood it that there were a lot of caveats in terms of don't fill up your disk understand how the disk space uses understand which features are safe to enable or not so it's not the same kind of like i can just install it and do it and it'll work um and i also think you're right like it is a little sad in that um it it was the in-kernel easy snapshotting copy on write file system and i mean some some distributions like uh, open they're still using it that's in the default in their latest releases um it's still enabled and non-deprecated in other distributions mm-hmm. um and i think you know some some places people like facebook etc like they have been using it for that effect things like where you just want to i just want to take snapshots of my rootfs so that i can have versioned artifacts or do my deploy and roll back really easily or, or things like that um but it, it it doesn't seem to have proven itself in the same way that zfs has in terms of reliability dependability simplicity uh and just general robustness uh so so it is it is disappointing uh, I will take this opportunity to, uh, if anyone is interested in supporting Mr. Kent Overstreet, who's working on BcacheFS, I think one thing that has going for it just out of the gate is that it's not claiming to be the one Drew file system or necessarily going to be your solution, uh, but he has a lot of experience working on Bcache. Um, BcacheFS has some very, very solid technical fundamentals. And if we can't get over the licensing hurdle of ZFS, I would obviously prefer that we just, you know, on the Linux side of the fence could just use ZFS when it makes sense and, and keep it simple. Mm-hmm. Uh, that seems to be, in my opinion, at least for the moment, uh, our greatest hope for the future. Yeah. Uh, I don't see any reason why ZFS can't be more widely used on Linux. Yeah. It, it's not an insurmountable licensing issue as far as I know. Yeah, I mean, Ubuntu is, uh, you know, shipping it right in 16.04. You can install the module pre-compiled mm-hmm. by them, so. Mm-hmm. Question for you. Without looking it up, where did ButterFS originate? Uh, Oracle. Yeah. Who now owns Sun? Oracle, I'm so sorry to say. And where did ZFS start? Sun. Isn't that funny? What a strange, mm-hmm. what a strange world mm-hmm. that we live in. Mm-hmm. Mm-hmm. 
I only knew that because I looked it up ah. just just now. Yeah, I mean, you wouldn't the, the, expect the bit that about is. ButterFS and Oracle. No, I did not know that right? ButterFS yeah, originated. It's Oracle. weird. I think a lot of people don't know that, and you're like, oh. Now, development is only seven years old, mm -hmm. and it took seven years. No, sorry, ten years old. Began in two thousand seven, and by twenty fourteen, the file systems on disk format had been marked as stable. Okay, I see. I mean, I, it gets a lot of hate, and I don't want to be just a, just a hater or anything like that, because honestly, I have several systems that are using ButterFS, and I have some of my data stored on it, because, um, you know, it still does do snapshots and checksumming and, and all those things, but I certainly wouldn't make any big technological investments in it right now. Well, yeah, I don't think I'd be deploying it. Yeah, Exactly. Uh, okay, well, interesting news. It'll be interesting to see if anyone else follows suit or if we see, you know, they, they don't mention anything. There's no guidance about if Red Hat is considered ZFS at all or if they, you know, a bunch of lawyers were like, yeah, we can do it. What Red Hat's lawyers think, we I'm, I'm not mm -hmm. sure, but it would be really interesting to know. Yes. That maybe in the next year or two years, we'll see some some movements on that issue as ZFS and, Z, and ZFS on Linux continue to, you know, prove that they can do the work. I don't know. Yeah, I I hope so. I hope so too. I ho hope something comes of this because I certainly don't like um, Linux not having a decent file system. Exactly. See, I appreciate that. I'm Thank so you. Yeah. That's very. That's the most. That's so generous and a very polite way to say it. So I think that's a that's the perfect segue to our next ad today. Um, which, if you love ZFS, you're gonna love IX systems because I mean. They really, they really know it. They know it the best. You need a new production system. You're serious about data. You've got big data problems. Look no further than our friends at IX Systems. Head on over to ixsystems.com slash techsnap. There you'll find the ultimate guide to buying a new server for open source. You can avoid all these, you know, all, all kinds of problems, missed deadlines, terrible support, people who just don't know what they're doing or confusing web interfaces where you can't talk to a human, you don't know what you need, all the model numbers, there's like 6,000 of them, they're all minutely different, and you're not sure, does that one come with the right SAS expander? Will that motherboard work with the processor that I need that has the chipset variant that makes sure that my thing compiles? Other vendors, you're on your own. You're just, you're just on your own, but not at IX Systems. They've been in this game a long time, through .com bubbles and bursts, and they know what they're doing. Just take a look at some of their partners. You know, people like NASA, uh, UC Berkeley, Sony, Disney. These people know that IX means business. So, so whether you need just a new server or for you know a new server because you got launched in a new product, you're excited, you have your own data center, you want to fill it up with beautiful servers. IX is great for that. Maybe you just have a small office or even a home, and and you're like, I got to get serious. 2017, it's the year for me. Wes and Dan, they just keep talking about how if you don't have like three backups, do you really, if you don't have three copies, do you really have a backup? Can I really trust that those pictures of my beautiful new dog or kid or house projects or whatever is important to you, you know, you need to take that seriously. So if that's, if that's what you're going through, check out the free NAS mini. You can order it on Amazon. You can order it through IX and it's perfect. It runs the open source free NAS software, which IX systems is behind and contributes to. And 
it's super easy. It's got like hot swappable bays. It has a robust build. It's ready to go. And the software makes it so easy. So whether or not you are a masterful ZFS admin, which, hey, if you're watching this program, maybe you at least want to be, but such an easy way to get started. If you have bigger needs than that, check out the true NAS and the true rack. Plus, go check out IX Systems. They've got a blog. They've got a great social media presence. You'll see them all the time at various Linux, BSD, and open source conferences. They've almost always got a booth. You'll see them giving out those awesome BSD horns. They really, they really care about the community. They're members of the community. They contribute upstream to the OpenZFS project, and they know what it takes to make open. You know. They're not the they're not the vendor that's going to be like, oh yeah, you need this problem solved. Well, let us let us sell you this like super proprietary locked up thing, no contributions to open source. Yeah, we we forked it from like FreeBSD ten versions ago. Uh, yeah, something like that. No, that's not IX. They've got super talented sales engineers ready to talk to you, ready to help you deploy whatever software you need on awesome servers. They'll be they'll be burned in. They burn you know burn in all their their hard drives, the servers. They've made sure it'll work. They'll configure it exactly how you need and make sure that it's shipped to you ready to be racked into the data center and serving production traffic it's just so simple they're experts at this there's no one better and just like us they know how great zfs really is so ixsystems.com slash techsnap that lets them know you appreciate them sponsoring the techsnap program and gets you started on your journey to an awesome new server okay so with no further ado, we've got our next piece from the wonderful Mr. Troy Hunt. Troy Hunt. Dan's favorite so, this week. He is. He is. And well-deserved, I should say. Mm-hmm. Now, earlier in the show, I talked about his Have I Been Pwned service. Basically, you sign up with your email address, and it lets you know whether or not that email address is found in a data dump somewhere. It's a good service. I'm signed up. My email address has been in a few dumps. So people have always asked Troy, why don't you give away those passwords because we can always use them? And he said, no, because people just use it for for brute force. But he has been reading recently uh, some of the latest uh, password suggestions from NIST includes some very interesting things, such as uh, you really should allow people to have a... You shouldn't restrict passwords to anything less than 64 characters, I think they say. Something like that. Troy goes and says, easily make it 100. Because yeah. longer passwords are harder to guess. The number of places and, that like limit me to eight characters or something obscene, you're just like, what can be the point of this? Limit it to eight to ten characters. Yes, yes right? Which I already have... What? What? That greatly reduces the... the <sighs> exactly. Ridiculous. It's insane. All right, go on. It's, I'm it's sorry. Legacy. It's just so it's, frustrating. It's legacy. Exactly. It's legacy. Those COBOL yeah. systems just can't keep up. And NIST is also recommending use of password managers. And they're also recommending don't force people to change their password on a regular basis. And other things like that. See, so that's anyway. interesting. It's, it's a very modern take on it, you know? Especially, oh. I mean, those two combined, right? Like... It, it, mm-hmm. it probably makes sense because if I can use a password manager and generate a 30-character random thing mm-hmm. and just keep it, yep. that's probably better than yep. me trying to remember my kid's name plus 12 characters and a thing yep. and just and then constantly cycling over them. So You have kids? No, I don't. That's just an example. Okay. Yeah, sorry. All right. Um, 
Have you ever encountered a web page that does not allow you to paste your password? Yes, I have. I'm sorry to say. I have. It's ridiculous. It's crazy. It's so frustrating. It doesn't make me any more secure. Uh, and it, it probably just it just makes me frustrated and yep. doesn't want make me use the service. Okay, so let me make you happier. I'll read Ooh, what Troy was saying. I like right. that. So, of particular interest to me was the section advising organizations to block subscribers from using passwords that have been previ- that have previously appeared in a data breach. Here's a full excerpt from the Authentication and Lifecycle Management doc. When processing requests to establish and change memorized secrets, i.e. passwords, verifiers shall compare this, the prospect, prospective secrets against a list that contains values known to be commonly used, expected, or compromised. For example, the list may include, but is not limited to, passwords obtained from previous breach corpses. So what? Corpuses? Corpuses. Yeah, there we go. Dictionary words. Repetitive or sequential characters. Context-sensitive words, such as the name of the service, the username, and derivatives thereof. If the chosen secret is found on the list, the CSP, or verifier, shall advise the subscriber that they need to select a different secret, shall provide the reason for rejection, and shall require the subscriber to choose a different value. Troy goes on to say, NIST isn't mincing words here. In fact, they're quite clearly saying that you shouldn't be allowing people to use a password that's been breached before, among other types of passwords that they shouldn't be using. Troy just happens to have a big list of these passwords. And he's given their hashes to us. The the title of the article says 360 million, but it's actually 322 million something, something, something. I think I I I posted the actual number somewhere. Yeah, 320,335,236 password hashes. They're all SHA-1 hashes, so they're easy to calculate. Right. I know this because I downloaded it, put it in a a Postgres database, and started looking for the passwords I used to use. They were there. I don't know if they were in a breach, breach, mm. or if someone else used the same password. Right, you like some of the passwords I know for a fact are very common. Mm-hmm. Like I tried the word password; it was there. <laughs> yeah, whether or not you used that, or a thousand other people who I to didn't say? use it. Okay, well that's good. So, I believe you. Now, it's interesting how he compiled this list. So he began with the exploit in list, which contained. 805 million rows of email addresses and plain text password pairs. That actually had only about 593 million unique email addresses, which meant that some email addresses had more than one password, which meant there was more than one way to get into an account. Interesting. Multi- multiple different alternative passwords, which be key, could be used to break into the one account. That sounds ridiculous to me. He grabbed the passwords from the exploit in list, which gave him 197 unique values. Now think about that. He's gone from 593 unique email addresses and 805 rows, 805 million rows of email and plain text passwords 
75% of the passwords in that one data set had been used more than once. So in a collection of logins from a system, 75% of the passwords are in there more than once. Hmm. The password you're picking is not unique. Yeah, no kidding. So people will say, well, yeah, but they had multiple passwords per account. I said, yeah, but he removed all the duplicates and it still was heavily reused, heavy reuse of passwords. So then he moved on to the anti-public list, which contained 562 million rows with 457 million email addresses. And that gave him another 96 million unique passwords not already in the list. So from 450 million, he only got 90 million new email addresses. So 83% of the passwords out of that list were already in the list he had. So from two different groups, the passwords overlapped by 83%. People aren't using unique passwords. And it's entirely expected, he says, as more data is added, a smaller proportion of the passwords are previously unseen. So that makes sense. So what he did is he took his list of passwords and he's provided a service where you can enter in your password to find out if it's there. Isn't that awesome? I I love that. I mean, that seems like a a, a great thing to have. And I've enjoyed using said, it. But he says don't use it for a password you're actually still using. Right. That's a very important caveat. Because who knows, right? I mean I I think he's trustworthy, but there's always a chance that something somewhere anywhere. And, and you may but be man he, in the middle or he, otherwise snooped yep. upon. He gives very simple examples of what to use here to say you can test with this password. But it goes without saying, although I say it anywhere on that page, don't enter a password you currently use into any third party service like this. I don't explicitly log them and I'm, I'm a trustworthy guy, but yeah, don't do it. Now he gives an example of what what you'll see if the password is in the list, and he gives an example of what you'll see if the password isn't in that list. But to make things easier, you can also enter in a SHA-1 hash of the password. Oh, man. He is just – Troy is such a professional. That's the, like, So it automatically level. detects if it's a SHA-1 hash. However – if your actual password was a SHA-1 hash, yeah. don't enter it in there. So he also has an online API for this service. So what? your website can query his service that's to amazing. find out if the password that somebody just entered is in that list. <laughs> that's incredible. Uh, that's This is why you get two mentions in the TechSnap main segment because that's amazing. Mm -hmm. Troy mentions one quick caveat on the search feature. Absence of evidence is not evidence of absence. Or in other words, just because a password doesn't return a hit doesn't mean it hasn't been previously exposed. For example, the password he used on Dropbox is out there as a bcrypt hash. And it's 
And given it's a randomly generated string out of one password, it's simply not getting cracked. I say this because some people will inevitably say, I was in the XX breach and used YY password, but your service didn't say it was pwned. And that's because it's a bcrypt. Okay, so you can't, if it's a bcrypt hash, you can't get there that way. Because all that's useful are plain text hashes. Or, yeah, you, you, you can't. You can't redo a bcrypt hash, can you? Because you have to know what the original was or something. I don't I don't know, but anyway. So he goes on to a couple of things about what you can do with this service, what you can do with this data. You can get into checking passwords offline. Which is what I've done. Yeah, you ha you can download the entire collection of 320 million hashed passwords, and then unzip them. I l it took me a long time to find out how to use uh, what was it a P P7 zip. I'd never used it before. The man page was not clear, but I finally got it unzipped. And then I also have instructions here on how to generate a SHA-1 hash of whatever it is. And the TechSnap, I think the TechSnap, was the TechSnap thing in there? I checked to see if TechSnap was in there. Like the phrase? And yeah. Just the uppercase thing. Let me see. Did it work? I'm looking. I'm looking. And I think... I think it did, but I can't, I cannot read what my own writing is here. Anyway, um, I've given instructions in the show notes on, on how you can check your own passwords if you want. Make sure you clear your command line history after doing this. Yes. You don't want someone coming along and seeing all this list of stuff. Don't worry so much about the hashes because the hashes are public anyway. So maybe do something um, where you like... Uh save it to a file that you execute that pipes mm -hmm. into mm -hmm. your SQL or something? Yes, yes. And remember that the hashes in the database are uppercase. So convert oh, everything to upper, uppercase yeah, that's a or run a, run a query. It, I tried about half a dozen times <laughs> and I say, no, my password's not in there. Oh, that's great. Oh, wait. Never mind. Let me try, let me try his example. Oh, that's not in there either. Oh, and then I found out it was generating the SHA hashes in incorrectly in, no incorrectly oh the hash i was generating did not match match his hash because he gives the example of the password and then the hash of the password it wasn't right i, I was doing like echo something into there it includes a new line you know i've run into that exact same predicament when yep. i was trying to replace an admin password of a wordpress page to step in happenstance which the old versions used md5 hashes mm-hmm mm-hmm Speaking of hashes, Troy says, why hashes? Yeah, which is a, a great topic. <clears throat> why didn't he release the passwords themselves? Sometimes passwords are personally identifiable. Either they contain personal information, such as kids' names and birthdays, or they can even be email addresses. One of the most common password hints in the Adobe data breach, remember they, had, they, they leaked hints in clear text, was email. So you see the challenge here. So basically, he's not going to release the passwords. He's just releasing the hashes. Further to that, 
if he did provide all the passwords in clear text fashion, it opens up the risk of them being used as a source to potentially brute force accounts. Yes, some people will be able to sniff out the n- sources of a large number of them in plain text if they really want to, blah, 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 blah. <laughs> no, he didn't really release it. So, use case number one, registration. When you register, it checks this list to see whether or not your password is in there and says, no, you can't use it. Okay. Uh, Use case number two, password change. If you're changing your password, does it match something on the list list? Yes, it does. Don't use it. Use case number three, login. You log in, it checks the password that you've entered in against the hash in the database and says, oh, by the way, the password you're using was in a data breach. You might want to use something else. Now, other use cases. Um, uh, for example, you, you could tell someone that you're only allowed to use this owned pwn password if you use two-factor authentication. And then he went on to say that MailChimp provides him a 10% discount if he's enabled two-factor authentication. Wow. Imagine, imagine how much money a data, you know, how, how much money are you going to spend if someone gets into a client's account? So, yeah. Um, what else did I want to say? Oh, yeah, uh, I've used the website. Um, I've used a few, like, very simple. I don't think I entered any passwords that I ever used, but I did try some of the hashes. His website service works. I did not use the API. Um, I highly recommend reading his posts that I've added in the show notes. Passwords Evolved, Authentication Guidance to the Modern Era. It's very interesting reading. and goes into more detail about the NIST um, uh, suggestions and requirements. Yeah, it's a great, like... Um you know, kind of uh, first principles almost approach to like, here's yes. what we should be concerned about. Here's our real problems that we see in the wild and how we can design secure policies around that. Uh, local, uh, each different country's government usually has suggestions on security this way. NIST has very good suggestions. That um, article I just referenced talks about stuff um, on this side of the ocean and that side of the ocean giving exact recommending exactly the same thing big companies recommending exactly the same thing um uh where was it um that uh we already talked about that and then what was the last one have i been pwned yes uh is a donate page it starts at 380 $3.80 which is a large cappuccino at his local you can also donate in Bitcoin, and there's also a link to his API. And I think a lot of people will be taking him up on this. I think it's is did I read? Do I recall correctly? It's Cloudflare that is uh, providing him with uh, the bandwidth and space. Yes, it is Cloudflare. They are hosting all this data for him and providing it um, free of charge for everyone to download if you want to get that list of hashes. didn't take me very long to download. I think I had it done in a couple of hours, and most of that time was spent waiting for things to happen, like data to load up or data to download or things to unzip or create an index. Um, 
if I recall correctly, the database on disk is about 40 gig, and it's roughly evenly distributed between data and index. And it was very quick. Um, I think it was about point less than 0.2 milliseconds to lo- locate a hash in the database. So that's, and I know that can't be cached because it's 20 gig of data. I don't think the the server. Oh, maybe it has more than 20 gig of RAM. But yeah, it's fast. Uh, if you've got a big service, I recommend using using this database. It would be so easy to set up. You could put it all in a memcache if you wanted to. Yeah. Oh, yeah. You totally could. I was I was about to say like I wonder I wonder how his API is uh, implemented. I would be shocked if it wasn't memcache or something like that. But uh, it's only a twenty gig database that can be stored entirely within RAM. Yeah. Pretty easy. I'm sure that's what, how I was getting 0.2 milliseconds. Yeah, and then just a little bit of a little bit of CPU there. But awesome. Okay, well that's that's fascinating. I'm I'm glad to see this kind of. It it just it really illuminates a lot about like what's wrong with with a lot of places' current policies, uh, just the fundamental flaws in it, and then especially as like we move forward to this world where like post passwords or tons of password management services mm. things like yeah. biometric information um it, it would be nice to, to to try to get passwords right and have a reliable resources that you know you're rolling your own service you're starting your own thing or you're a big uh, enterprise company you have some place to turn you have some principles you can follow and do best practices so it's great to see this being uh, being fleshed out some I remember reading in in one of these posts about a problem with, you know, we can't allow more more than ten characters of password because, well, legacy probably is what the issue was. But they said we your passwords can't be longer than ten because of security. Um, but I guess they also had a recommendation that you know you're not allowed to have passwords less than eight, so it's eight to ten characters. So your password has to be. You got to bring your systems up to date, folks. Don't make it easy. No kidding. Do do the work now and avoid the problems later. You'll thank us when you do. Uh, Indeed. Okay. Well, on that uh, somber and, uh, you know, preachy note, it's time yes. for our final sponsor this evening, which is our friends over at Ting. Head on over to techsnap.ting.com. There you will find a smarter way to do mobile. So you're probably thinking like, okay, well, mobile's got to be a solution here, right? I'm, all right, I've got my password manager. I'm trying to figure this out on the desktop. I'm taking this seriously. I want a company that, one, doesn't restrict me to having arbitrarily small passwords. Hey, don't worry about that at Ting. They've got very same guidelines. And two, will let me use the phone that I want, the phone that I've determined in my own life is secure and lets me use the software I want and make sure that I can you know, use passwords without, without any sort of limitations or the biometric things or whatever other things that you might want. And Ting is the place for that. So prices start at just $6 a month. There are no early termination fees, and you get all the features that you get from any other carrier. But there's there's an important detail I've left out so far. Yeah, it's pretty big. So you're thinking like, ah, Ting, what is the deal here? It sounds like the same any old carrier. No, because Ting is pay for what 
you use. That's what makes it a smarter way to do mobile. So just head on over to their rates page, and there you'll see how it all breaks down. They've got this handy-dandy interactive application for you. Pick how many lines you want, one, two, three, whatever number, and then just estimate your usage. So they've got, a, they've got an awesome tool. If you use one of the big car- carriers, you can, you can pass along some credentials to them. They'll go do an estimate for you to show you how much you save or take a look at your last couple bills, compute an average, plug that in right here. Let's say you maybe, maybe you use like 100 minutes because your aunt who, who, who doesn't have Wi-Fi isn't hip to data. She calls you over the landline. There's nothing you can do about it. So you use a couple minutes. That's $3 a month. You don't use text messages because, you know, either people are too old, they don't use text messages, or all your hip new friends, they they use WhatsApp or equivalent. Maybe they use Signal because they watch the TechSnap program. Um, so you pay nothing. You pay nothing if you use nothing. That's what makes Ting so great. And then it's just however much data you use. So let's say you use a gig, reasonable amount, you know, you're on the road a little bit, but you got Wi-Fi at work, you got Wi-Fi at home. Your monthly bill would be 25 dollars that's the kind of price that you would pay just for like an activation on one of those other giant carriers the kind of plans that cost you 120 dollars a month yeah sure you've got quote unquote unlimited everything but what good does that do you right you you're in this thing where you're like either you're like okay i'm going full unlimited because i just use so much i just can't i can't even think about it but really do you do you really use that much do you use that much every month are you using like 30 gigs of data a month if not you should really just just check out Ting. I'm not saying it's what you know necessarily will be your next carrier, but they've got a ton of benefits. Tethering, that's included. Three-way calling, that's included too. And you can bring your own phone. They've got their own. They've got a shop full of awesome phones, including the latest from Samsung, those Apple devices that Dan loves so much. They've got everything. It's, it's there for you. And... They've got GSM and CDMA. They're not a bank carrier. They don't have to spend a bunch of money trying to build out new poles, building the infrastructure, because they work with some of the big carriers. They resell them with way smarter policies. So whether CDMA works for you, you got a lot of trees, it's a little bit rural, or you're in the city, you like GSM, and it's just super fast, it doesn't matter. Get a phone that works. Buy a phone from Ting. You can sign up instantly. They've got an incredible, incredible web dashboard, an amazing app You can do everything you want, activate, deactivate, sign up new phones, register a new device, all of that without talking to a person. And if you need more intimate support, call them up. You'll talk to a real live human who is dedicated to fixing you. That's the thing that Ting does best. That's what they care about. It's customer service. So techsnap.ting.com. That'll get you started with a $25 service credit so whether or not you can put that to a new phone or as you can see here that will probably pay for your whole dang first monthly bill so techsnap.ting.com and thank you to our dear friends at ting for sponsoring the techsnap program and that brings us to the feedback the time in the show where we take time out of the busy show full show amazing show whatever words you want to use and we hear from you our wonderful audience so first up we've got a letter from tyler from prince edwards island about pixie close, boot imaging. is that close what is it that was my guess there's no there's no uh plural there's no plural ah so yeah, it's prince it's edward just, island that makes yep. sense or he P E I. and there no, you can no. see it 
P-I. Oh, P-I. Okay. Yeah, no, you have to have more of an E, but it's more like P-I. P-I. Yeah. Okay, I'll never learn. That's fine. That's why you. That's why we've got you, Mr. Dan, and that's why we've got Tyler from... There we go. Thank you very much. So, he writes... Yes. With regards to the conversation around pixie booting in episode 329, I just wanted to give a shout out to the Fog Project. I work at a small university, and we have been using Fog for a number of years now to deploy our standard workstation images. We run the software on a Debian host, uh, though Ubuntu, Red Hat, CentOS, Fedora, and Arch are also supported. Hey, that's an impressive array. And it can capture images from Windows, Mac OS, and Linux hosts, both physical and virtual. I'm not sure about the BSDs, however. We found it to be relatively easy to implement and has been very reliable in production. Hey, that's what you want. The general idea is that you prepare an image on a client machine, either physical or VM, then pixie boot that client using the Fog server to capture the disk image over the LAN, using part clone under the hood. Oh, very nice. Yeah, okay, I know part clone. Once the image is uploaded, you can then deploy that image over the LAN to other client workstations in either unicast or multicast sessions. Hey, multicast, that's great. That's a really nice thing to see, especially if you're doing this sort of thing at scale. One of my favorite features is the ability to pixie boot a workstation and choose from any number of images which have been uploaded to the server. Our approximately 30 to 60 gig images deploy in three to five minutes on average. He doesn't mention what kind of like, I assume this is at least a gigabit network there, but... Um, that's that's great, which makes for a pretty quick testing of new images or configurations or even different operating systems altogether. As always, big thanks to Dan West and the rest of the JB team. And a big thanks to Tyler for writing in. What do you think about this, Dan? It, he's using words I've never heard of before, <laughs> like part clone. I've never heard of that. But it, yeah, it's a partition clone and restore tool. Uh, I've never used that. I don't deploy new hardware often enough for this to be useful to me. But um, it almost sounds like a, a jail creation tool. But it's not. It's, I know it's totally different. But that's that's what I think of when I hear this. But yeah, Fog is getting a lot of love the past few episodes. That no kidding. Yeah, uh, part clone. I, I believe it's also used under the hood um, with uh, Clonezilla as well and so it's just um Mm -hmm. one way to you know take a take a block device partition and just convert that to an image Uh, so then they they have some multiple stubs i think part of the thing that it does too is it'll call out to the file system specific helper if it has one and that will then make sure that you don't clone anything like you know a bunch of empty blocks or that sort of stuff so that you have an image of the file system that is you know only as much data as you actually have on that file system as opposed to more data than you have on that file system? Well, as opposed to the full size of the file system. Like if you do a very naive, oh, yes. just like yes, DD yes. copy yes. sort of thing. Yes, yes, um, Obviously, one would assume that, you know, a little compression think, after the fact would solve that, but... I think of sparse... Oh, yeah. Sparse files. Right. I will we say... do I, that. Oh. I, I encountered that in Bacula. There's uh, a specific test for sparse files. Yeah, okay. That makes sense. Uh, I do really appreciate Tyler's comments about the, um, you know, the feedback loop there, because I've certainly experienced that in my past deployments where you're like, okay, I'm going to build my new golden image, I'm doing it, and then you like wait an hour and a half for it to go get all finished and deployed on the new thing, and then you go find out that you're like, oh, I forgot to delete this one file that's going to mess up the whole thing and the default user profile won't work. So it's really nice if you can go from like capture the image, 
10 minutes later, you've got to deploy it on a thing and you can actually go test that in a meaningful time so that you can, you know, make changes in a day. Yeah, basically, I would want to set up a system and say, okay, clone this image off this drive. Is that what he's talking about? Yes, exactly. So it sounds like you can you can boot the fog client and then select like, hey, you know, make an image from this machine that goes then stores that image on the server and then mm-hmm. boot another machine on the client and be like, hey, restore from and then choose an image. So we we mentioned like the uh, netboot.xyz maybe on that same same podcast or or the the one following which yep. is a an online version of this so with fog it sounds like it'd be really easy to have your own in-house version where you can have multiple images yeah. you know maybe new people on your network are bringing up their own laptops or vms they want to just choose the default supported installation a lot of options yeah that, that, that's paragraph five yeah i agree with your interpretation of what he's saying yeah that's what's happening seems like it's pretty slick so i'm glad to see a lot of people have tried it i, I have not but uh Next time I need something like this, I think I might just give Fog a try. Speaking of Fog. Yeah. On to our next piece of feedback. <laughs> Over at Twitter, uh, Anthony Scardinia writes, Hey guys, see image and link for comment on Pixie Boot and uh, imaging computers. Yeah. So this one we had last week. Yes, we did. And then Tyler retweeted this one, plus one for Fog, versatile and reliable. So I thought it was pretty cool that he was replying to the original tweet from last week. I like that, too. I mean, now now that's like a discussion. So anyone else in the audience, you can go find him at, at uh, T. Dickson. So uh, go there, contribute to the discussion, or let us know if you love, hate, or uh, are otherwise interested in fog, pixie booting, or anything else we talk about here on the show. That's Tyler. Okay, next. Ah, Look at this. Dan's it's putting the same Tyler. I just figured it out. The Tyler from the first post is the Tyler that retweeted plus one for fog, versatile and reliable. And I didn't notice it when I was compiling the, the, the this feedback. Because if you notice, if you go on to, you know, Tyler Dick, Dick, Dickerson, but then he's in PEI. Canada. I like Thank that. Thank you, Tyler. Tyler, you're the best. Thank you. As are as is everyone who gives us provides us feedback. Okay, so one last piece of feedback today, and this one is is a fun one. Uh by at Exors. Yes. Nineteen sixties versus now. People in the sixties. I I better not say that or, or the government will wiretap my house. People today. Hey Wiretap, do you have a recipe for pancakes? Yeah, I think I think they're they're spoofing um, uh, Amazon and Google services, and yeah, they're not using the the name so that we don't accidentally trigger people's Amazon Echoes or Amazon. What's the smaller one? Tap. Don't know what the smaller Echo is called anymore. But yeah, this oh, is dot, true. I believe dot. Echo that dots. Yeah. That's the one. Yep. And then someone else says there, 2007. Don't don't get in strangers' cars. Don't talk to strangers. And now with Uber and Lyft, we contact strangers on our internet to get into their car. Yeah, right. Yeah. Exactly. We've kind of uh, turned things on their head. 
Mm-hmm. Oh, mm-hmm. 2017, what a world you are. Well, yes. uh, thank you to everyone who's provided feedback for today's episode. It really makes these things more interesting and generates a lot of discussion and things for us to talk about. Surprising questions, criticisms, comments of all kinds are welcome. You can go to jupiterbroadcasting.com slash contact to provide feedback there or find us both on Twitter, send us feedback there, or techsnap.reddit.com. Stay tuned. We'll be right back with the Roundup. And with that, it's now time for the final segment of today's show. That's right, the Roundup. First up, we've got something from the Dropbox tech blog. Something, if you're a Dropbox user, you might be interested in. It's all about how Dropbox securely stores your password. Yeah. So they start with the password and then SHA-512 it and then bcrypt it using user salt and then AES-256 encrypt it with a global seed, which is offline and not really available to anything. So all of this means that, you know, the, the, the password, if you grabbed one of their passwords, encrypted passwords, it wouldn't mean much to you. You wouldn't be able to do much with it. You wouldn't use it in a rainbow tree or anything like that. So basically, a data breach of these passwords, useless to anyone. Now, um, I asked a security person, you know, tell me what you think of this. And they pointed me to their comments that they made earlier on this. And their one issue that I think they had was this one line where they say, uh, why use S-Script over B-Crypt? And they considered using S-Script but had more experience with B-Crypt, which my contact said, yeah, okay, that's fair enough. But the debate over which algorithm is better is still open, and most security experts agree that S-Script and B-Crypt provide similar protections. And that's what he took issue with. So he's not sure that they know what they're talking about when it comes to this sort of stuff, but they should be secure enough given what they've done here. Yeah, he questioned their knowledge, not their approach. Yeah, it seems like there's a at least fairly uniform consensus that S-Crypt is at least theoretically better than B-Crypt, but uh, mm-hmm. it is newer, so there may be some organizations that are, you know, reticent to use yeah. it or are otherwise skeptical yeah. just for the newness. Which is fair enough. Right. But and the reason for, for about choosing that. B-Crypt is, is perfectly acceptable. Yeah. But it's nice. It's it's awesome to see this, too, just in terms of, you know, just transparency and disclosure. If you are going to use a uh, proprietary server-side mm-hmm. solution to store some of your important files, it's good to know that uh, they can, they're yeah, at can. least trying to do the right things in the back end. Indeed. Okay. So, uh, as we do in the roundup, jumping right on to our next story. This is over at the GNOME mail list. Get it is unmaintained. Some thoughts. Now, now, I might have I might have used GNOME for a while. I'm sure I did. It's just been a long time. Yeah. Yeah, I mean they've got that on the over there on in the FreeBSD world. There's nothing stopping you. What were your thoughts on this? I mean, it's uh, it's interesting to see, and they they kind of bring up some larger questions. I mean, there's obviously the issue of this project being unmaintained, but there's there's some like larger problems at play here. Down at the bottom, he says, if get it dies, I think there's a more generalist 
lesson for all GTK plus applications. It is important to write more libraries sharing the code and maintenance among several similar applications. Before he contributed to GTK source view, there was 8,000 lines of code in GetIt for the file opening and saving. That's just the back end part, not the front end. Do, do you seriously think that only GetIt needed to load and save files with GTK source view? I would have thought they would have started using SQL. Oh no, sorry. When I think of file open, I think I think of SQLite all the time. But oh yeah, yeah, right. They're actually doing real files. There are other text editors out there. And now GNOME Builder is making the same mistake, developing in its own in its corner a lot of text editor features. Do you really think that the Vim mode is useful only to GNOME Builder? They're right. Make libraries. Yeah. And the libraries will be maintained because everyone's interested in them. And then you can just work on this smaller part of your app. Share share the stuff that has to be reinvented all the time or shouldn't be reinvented all the time amongst in a library and let everyone on the GNOME project contribute to it. And then you can just work on your get it as opposed to all those other libraries. Right. I mean, it's, it's, in, it's like an analog kind of to like minimum viable product. It's, you know, make, make your special sauce as minimum as possible to implement the things that only you really are needing. Now, I will say mm. that there's a lot of times where that's a little bit harder because you have to think a little bit harder about solving a generic problem, right, instead of solving your problem. But especially in the open source world where we want things to be able to last for decades, if not longer, it might, you know, it probably makes sense to try to aim for that if you can, or at least be open to it. Sure, maybe you do an initial implementation where you've just done it for yourself, but reflect on that, take it to the next level, try to see what kind of abstractions make sense. That so, like, yeah, so things like Vim mode, etc. That like, if that could just be a pervasive feature of a bunch of, uh, you know, GNOME editing interfaces, that would be awesome. I'm a Vim user. I would like to have VI key bindings all over the place, but I don't. Um, so I, I definitely resonated with that. And I don't know why you need 8,000 lines of code to load a file and save a file. That's a, that's a separate, that's a lot of code. probably fair question. Indeed it is. So uh, I will also say, like, uh, these days, Get It's pretty nice. Uh, there's, a lot, there's a bunch of plugins that you can do a lot of things. I know some people use it kind of as um, their own type of editor. Things like, uh, you know, Git plugins. There's terminal plugins. I remember way back in the day using something like that. Uh, there are now things like GNOME Builder and obviously all the other powerful IDEs or editors, uh, but it's it's pretty nice. And I think like GNOME kind of needs a, a, a stock text editor that can do a bunch of stuff. Um, so it'd be nice to get this sort of thing modernizing. So get it is basically a GUI editor? Yeah, it's a it's like a text editor. It's like a notepad or um, whatever the default text editor on Mac so, is. So not much more than, say, notepad. Yeah, it's a little bit more featured than that. Um, I would say it's like Notepad, Notepad plus plus light, if you if you will. Like it has a fair number of extensions or plugins that will let you do some developer focused things, uh, but not it's not a full IDE or anything like that. Okay. Okay, so that's almost too long for the roundup. So we better move on. Uh, yes. This is good news. Maybe I don't know. I'll let you decide. DigiCert to acquire Symantec's website security business and related PKI solutions. Now, if I recall correctly, Symantec was the one that was wrapped over the knuckles for not being a good CA. 
Yes, Google in particular was kind of a uh, kind of upset with them, among other companies. Yeah. And I don't know much about DigiCert at all. I don't know if they're a good actor or highly regarded or what. But apparently, reading some of the comments, DigiCert has basically acquired the whole business. So they're taking it over. They're not going to be the... It's not like a reverse takeover or something like that. But DigiCert has bought it all. So... Time will tell. It's, yeah. It's, I mean, if, it, it seemed like Symantec wasn't always operating in good faith or at least had some substandard practices. So if they're no longer interested in doing a first-rate job at being yeah. a CA, then all, all the better, I think, for yeah. another company to give it a shot. I, like you said, I don't know about DigiCert or their background or history. Uh, that's something I'll try to look up for the future. But, uh, hey, change can oftentimes be good. It sounds like Semantic had had enough. <laughs> yeah, right, exactly. They, they weren't really in it, so they sold. And hopefully DigiCert can do better. Yeah, I mean, it's right there in the name, so hey, maybe maybe that's a good sign. We'll come back to certificates soon. I, I think that's inevitable. Just, I mean, yeah. we should yep. just have that in the name. Tech, tech Cert? I don't, something like that. Yep, yep. Okay, next story. Microsoft didn't sandbox Windows Defender. So I did. This is over at blog.trailofbits.com. This is pretty cool. Basically, Windows now provides a sandbox. Uh, I haven't used Windows in ages. Yeah, we're normally more on the the Unix bent, but uh, hey, a lot of people use Windows, so we better cover it. Yep. And um, basically, he figured out a way of how to um, put it in the sandbox, and now you can too. Yeah, it's pretty neat. Like it's an example of using, you know, some new some new platform primitives that are available and uh turning it around and making using it to make, you know, software safer. Uh we talked a little bit about something on the on the use side of this on Linux Unplugged today like uh the Fire Jail software. So there's there's things on our side of the fence as well, uh as well as in, on the the BSD side. Yep. Um well what he's done is he's got he's calling it app containers. So basically, he's created something called the Flying Sandbox Monster, and the core of which is uh, AppJail Launcher RS, which is a Rust-based framework to contain untrustworthy apps in app containers. So it's getting very complex there to me. I'm not exactly sure how he's doing it, but it is. it will be an interesting read for those that are interested the in end. Windows and these particular things, because I'm sure that... <laughs> <clears throat> Excuse me. This can be applied to other applications, not just Windows Defender. Yeah, exactly. It seems like App Container is is the framework for yeah for containing an application, which is a uh, which is neat. It's neat to see them using Rust as well. I haven't heard that much. I mean, I think most of the stuff I've seen from Rust has been I mean either from Mozilla or decidedly on the Unix side of things. So it's cool to see them leveraging that on the Windows side as well. It is pretty cool. Okay, so our final story in today's roundup is kind of a fun discussion over at security.stackexchange.com, and that's, should I revoke my no longer used Let's Encrypt certificates before destroying them? We talk a lot about Let's Encrypt on this program, but we haven't talked a lot about necessarily the life cycle, and I thought maybe this would just touch on that a bit. What do you think, Dan? Um, 
I I had thought about this and I had created uh, certificates in error, like typo in the name, right? Or uh, created it. There was something wrong with the creation, or I just wanted to force create it again to see see it flow through my um, infrastructure, and I didn't I didn't try to revoke them. I just basically deleted it. I was pretty certain that the key hadn't been leaked anywhere. Um, in some cases, the key never left the uh, machine it was created on. The machine it was created oh, on nice. is not directly connected to the internet, so. I was confident it was okay just to drop it. And for for some people, this is a legitimate concern. They say, ooh, should I do this? What's the right thing to do? And the consensus here was, if the key's not been leaked, don't bother. Uh, someone actually said that uh, Let's Encrypt actually doesn't do a CRL. Instead of a CRL, they have OSCP which I'm not familiar with. Uh, online certificate status protocol. Huh. Uh, so you knew a, that? No, I just Googled it in the back end because I'm just Did that you? fast. Uh, so so the, it has one central OSCP, OCSP responder that queries, queries the CA database directly, but for security and performance reasons, it's far better to have OCSP responders in each geographical region that work off a local cache of revocation data. Where, however you implement that, it's basically a CRL. Yeah. So, yeah. It seems like it's a, an alternative formulation that's basically isomorphic to a CRL. Yeah. Interesting. Well, okay. So, the consensus was here, you don't have to delete it. Yeah. If you can you be, if you can be confident that your private key has been securely stored and yes. you have no reason to believe that it was leaked or that your procedures were violated, then yeah, like you can just destroy it, ignore it, it'll never come up again, uh, which, which seems pretty reasonable. Yep. And yeah, it, destroy the key is rel- relative. Yep, right. You might want to remove it from your backups. Yeah, that too. Yeah, right. That's fair. That's fair. Um, so that could be a further consideration, right? Like if, if that's not something you can easily do or your backups are less secure in some way, maybe revoking it makes more sense. I appreciated that this thread kind of outlined some of the, the relative costs and benefits. And it seemed like it was kind of, and it wasn't a big deal either way. Like you could revoke it. It wasn't, it shouldn't be necessary in most cases, but if it makes sense to. And I just thought of something. I should not be including that directory. Uh yeah, I'm I'm just now thinking of other <laughs> ways of backing up. Generally, I back up the whole jail, but right. now I'm thinking I should not back up the the certs, um, the private keys, SSL certs, because then they're they're stored in places, various places. Right. Especially when but, with Let's Encrypt, you can just make new ones should you ever need to very easily. Yeah, but or if I did back them up, back them up separately so that it's just a very small backup mm-hmm. and. I can go to that backup and delete it specifically oh, without yeah. affecting backups of, of the box itself or you could the then jail include itself. that in other decom procedures or other steps or whatever. So now I'm not sure. Huh. But yeah, I could create a backup for every box. It only backs up user local at CSSL. Yeah, right. That makes sense. 
Interesting. Yeah, see, mm. exactly. It's a, it's a thought-provoking discussion, and I'm like, we're kind yes. of in, we're at the dawn of a new age of SSL and best practices, and much like, you know, like stateless apps and containers and all other sorts of things have sort of changed our industry. I think this is this is in the same vein, and we got to flesh out what the what the best ways to do it are. Yeah, I know. I've got a lot of old certs all backed up, sitting around sitting for another somewhere. three or four years. Yeah, thankfully, at least uh, with Let's Encrypt, you know, they're short-lived certs so that that helps a little bit as well um but still something to be aware of so i'm I'm glad we have it go read it if you guys are interested dan unless you've got anything else i guess that means we can get out of here today that concludes the TechSnap program awesome thank you for joining us this has been episode 331 i know it's unbelievable but that's a lot of TechSnap. If you're like, wow, that's a lot of tech snap, I'd like to watch the things I've missed, just head on over to jupiterbroadcasting.com. There you'll find the archive. That includes the archive of, of the current generation of this show, the past generation, and a ton of other great JB content. Things like BSD Now, Linux Unplugged, Linux Action News, or User Error. There's great stuff for people who like coding, coder radio, all kinds of stuff on the Jupiter Broadcasting Network. And you'll find the schedule, which will let you know when we're here live and when you can expect the next episode to be released, that sort of thing. Plus uh, the live stream, the IRC, and a contact form. If you'd like to contact us a little bit more directly, there's techsnap.reddit.com. I'm at Wes Payne on Twitter, and he is at techsnap underscore Dan. Say bye to everyone, Mr. Dan, and uh, hey... We'll see you guys next week.